Hello, everyone. I'm Al Daldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. This episode is hosted by Adam Ludgate. Adam is a programmer turned CTO who's involved in the startup tech community and is enticed by new and innovative ways of solving problems with technology. He has worked previously with the likes of IBM Canada, AOL UK, tech startups in London's Silicon Roundabout, as well as with a variety of oil and gas software firms in various development and leadership capacities. Let's join Adam now as he has an interesting conversation with Lourdes Juan. Take it away, Adam. Okay, this is the Rainforest Podcast. I'm here with Lourdes Juan, and uh, we're going to talk about her role as an entrepreneur uh, in Alberta and what she's doing. So, Lourdes, thanks for the show. Um, what is your uh, What is your background? Where Where are you from? Are you born in originally in Alberta? Yeah, or? I was. At, so, thanks for having me today. I was born um, Saint Albert, Alberta. Okay. Um, but we moved to Calgary when I want to say I was like two or three months old. So Calgary is my home. I'm a sort of fake Al- fake Calgarian because <laughs> I wasn't born here, but we moved here when I was pretty young. Okay. Okay. And so did you, um, how did you, how did you come, you know, obviously we'll get into how your, your various organizations that you're mm-hmm. running. You're, you're a very busy person. How did you get to where you are now? Are you, um, study, study here in Calgary? Um, did you, you know, explore into working for organizations as an employee and then realize it wasn't for you? How did, how did you become to entrepreneur? Yeah, actually. So I started, um, I went to a high school that is self-directed. So there's no classes or teachers, really. It's not sort of a typical way you would do uh, high school. So I went to Bishop Carroll. It's all self-directed study. And what that means was you, you know, read your textbooks, you took your unit tests, and uh, you sort of had this freedom. Um, And because of that, I was actually able to work uh, to get a co-op position when I was 14. And I did that with an architecture firm in Calgary. So I've been working in um, or around architecture since... um, uh, I guess 20 something years ago. <laughs> wow. um, so I started there and then every summer they hired me back. Um, I got accepted into uh, the University of Calgary and I finished a, just a general studies. Um, and then I went on to complete a master's of environmental design. Uh, and I took part of those studies in Barcelona. There was a cohort of us that went to Barcelona um, in my second year. I guess. So I've sort of always had an interest in architecture. What I finished was, um, so environmental design with a focus in urban planning. Okay, great. That's cool. Uh, I'm, I'm also a graduate of University of Calgary, so ha- happy oh, awesome. to hear that. Uh, happy alumni. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're you're overseeing four organizations and I'm, I'm having trouble wrapping my head around how you managed to do it all. So let's, let's run through them. Yeah. You've got Hive Developments, you've got Soma Spa, the Leftovers Foundation, which is something I'm particularly interested in talking to you about. And Moonlight Market Foundation. So let's let's go through those, and and maybe you can just let us know what what the high level, what each each one is doing. Sure, I'll add a fifth to that. Oh, geez, okay. <laughs> so um, I'm the co-founder of Fresh Roots, which is sort of an offshoot or a sister organization to the Leftovers Foundation. So we can go into more of that. But it all started um, in 2010 with Hive and Soma Spa. So um, I the the architecture company that I had been with for at the time about 12 years, um, was transitioning. Uh, they were sort of acquired by a, a larger construction company out of Vancouver. And my role as a planner, which I had just sort of finished seven years of school for, um, wasn't relevant in the company anymore. They wanted to move my role into a construction management role, but I knew really honestly nothing about it. I, I knew it was an asset to the company, but um, not in construction. Um, So I left that company, incorporated uh, my own, and because I had been there for 12 years, um, it was a a great way to sort of transition my clients who were basically focused on on planning and permitting and not construction. Um, So it wasn't a a conflict um, at all, really. So I was able to take those clients with my mentor um, and open up our respective companies. 
So that's sort of how that started. And then Soma, I always had a, a part-time slash full-time job working at a medical aesthetic office um, by Mount Royal College at the time. And the the company was sort of hyper-focused on uh, injectables and, and sort of cosmeceutical um, products. And that wasn't really my philosophy of, of self-care. So it was a really great job to have. And I did a lot of medical aesthetic training with them while I was in school and it was, you know, really great to put me through school. But, you know, I thought if I'm going to be an entrepreneur, then I should just do this full time. So I left there as well within months um, of each other uh, and uh, just sort of carried on my work, um, but working for myself and not for anyone else. So then the Leftovers Foundation started seven years ago in 2012. And so I'd been an entrepreneur. I've had my had my own companies for two years. And at the time, I was driving sort of a larger uh, car. And uh, my cousin, who was picking up from a local franchise, a local bakery franchise, and they what they do is they give out excess, their, you know, their excess bread to uh, different charities. And so he was picking up for his church, and he just needed the extra wheels. So I went along with him and it was like a Thursday night and at the time it seemed just like an errand. Like it was just something that I would go and help him pick up. And when I went there, um, just sure, seeing the sheer volume of food that was going to go to waste if for some reason we weren't going to go there uh, was astounding. It was 150 to 200 pounds of food. So he took about 50 pounds of it um, back to his um, organization and I took the rest to the drop-in center and I had no idea about, um, I mean, I knew there was something called the drop-in center. I knew that there were people who, you know, lived in shelters, but I really didn't know, I guess, the extent of it um, or anything really about the nonprofit world. Uh, but when I dropped it off, the, the gentleman at the uh, loading dock said it would be gone by, you know, noon the next day because they serve 3,000 meals a day. So I was sort of putting all these... Um, I was putting all the numbers together in my head over the next, you know, that night or and over the next couple days. And, you know, I didn't have an office at the time. I worked out of coffee shops. And so I just remember sitting at Starbucks or Phil and Sebastian or Sidewalk Citizen and just, you know, having a tea and wondering what they were doing with their excess at the end of the day. And um, the entrepreneur sort of world was pretty small at the time, or at least I didn't know too many people. So I would just approach them, um, approach the owner directly, and they were willing to work with me and kind of get this nonprofit um, off the ground. Um, and so that's what we started. Uh, today, the Leftovers Foundation has a sister organization uh, called Fresh Roots. Um, and the two organizations together, uh, Leftovers Combats Food Waste. So we redirect uh, this is a new number because we have a new partnership with um, a large retailer, but about 4.6 tons of food uh, each week is redirected in Calgary, uh, and some of that's in Edmonton as well. And uh, Fresh Roots is an organization that works on food security and food access. So we purchase food from farmers uh, and farmers outlets. We have partnerships with them. We purchase at um, below market price and we sell it into marginalized and vulnerable community um, at below market price through a pop-up mobile market approach. So we drive right up to communities and make it a community event and ensure that they're getting the food access that they need. Okay, that was the, uh, I think I was looking at your website earlier, and that was the community mobile market, right? Yeah, so that's, that's what it. that's what that is? Yeah, okay, so it lived, yeah, so it lived as a program under the Leftovers Foundation. You know, it was sort of different the way it started. The Leftovers Foundation at the time was sort of talking about reducing food waste, but also increasing food security. And through, you know, I would say several critics, but also through... Um, you know, people that were just engaged in in the food systems work that I, you know, that I wasn't, um, frankly, they were, you know, coming to us and saying, you know, redirecting food waste and giving it to service agencies isn't solving food security. Um, and I agreed with them. And the research backed that up. And, and I'm a uh, a policy nerd and, and I love data. And, you know, when we looked at it as an organization, we thought, well, we're wrong. And so Fresh Roots sort of came out of that, you know, how do we actually address food access and food security in neighborhoods that are food deserts, um, have a vulnerable and marginalized population that just don't have mobility to get to, um, you know, affordable grocery stores. So how do we really do that? 
So this idea was, you know, you'd have a sort of a food truck model um, and we would partner with different either affordable housing providers or at the time when we started community social workers to understand the needs of the people that they were working with. Um, and that turned out to be, so it started as a pilot with the city of Calgary with eight markets a month. Today, 11 months later, we are close to 60 markets a month. It's a fully functioning social enterprise um, that's incorporated as a nonprofit, but it's a profitable social enterprise. And we're just starting operations in Edmonton sometime this summer. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Okay, cool. Let's, uh, let's put that one on hold for a second because okay. I want to ask you some more questions on that. Sure. Uh, let's go through the Moonlight Market Foundation. Yeah, so this is sort of my... Um, what it is, is a, it's a street food night market um, that's in East Village every single year. Um, and we just do it one night. And it's really a celebration of different cultures um, through street food. So, you know, if you look at places, um, well, in Asia, but, you know, if you just look close to home in Vancouver, they have this sort of really eclectic, kind of funky Asian market in Richmond and it's huge and it's so great and it's every weekend of the summer um, and you get to try a lot of different um, types of food and I felt like Calgary was missing that you know we had a lot of food trucks which is great but the, they're full meals and so you you know to to have to try a bunch of different food trucks you're doing it on on different days and the purpose of Moonlight Market is to try a lot of different food uh, all at once so it's sort of like different food on a stick. Um, and so we partner with East Village and it's there every year and it's a really fun event where we can actually have vendors that cook street food um, outdoors. Uh, and we're, we have some retailers that, that join as well, but it's been, pretty, it's been pretty successful. I think Calgary sometimes on the, uh, that urban programming type of work, we lack a little bit because of, well, one, because of the weather, but also we just don't have that type of urban engagement or I didn't feel like we had this type of urban engagement, particularly around uh, celebrating different cultures. Okay. So that's what Moonlight Market is about. You, are you guys at all linked up with Taste of Calgary? No, that? so we're, we're completely separate. Um, our model is really that cultural piece. And so we really wanted to make sure that, you know, we have a wide variety, but also that uh, chefs and vendors can uh, try out different foods that, you know, aren't necessarily on their menu and this can be sort of like a incubation testing ground for them okay cool so we covered them all i think and the fifth one is kind of your offshoot of, yeah of that's the, fresh fruits of the, yeah. of, okay so let's and I, that's I, it <laughs> okay that's it so that's a lot so kind of that brings me to the next question then how do you manage i mean you've got surely you must have some partners um who are helping you you know, oversee these operations. Definitely. Do I have sleep? full teams. Do you, do you <laughs> eat? Do you exercise? Or do you just, you just work? I sleep very well because I work very hard during the day. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was harder when I first started because, you know, I didn't really know how to manage my time. I didn't really. And, and I think my upbringing a little bit helped that. I mean, I had to know how to manage my time a little bit when I went to self-directed you know, high school when I was 14, 15, and 16. So at a young age, I think I sort of, uh, I knew time management. But I think when you first start as an entrepreneur, you say yes to a lot of things. Um, and a lot of things, you know, 90% of those things you do not need to be saying yes to. And so I've learned over the years that um, it's okay to say no to things um, so that you can be you know, sort of focused on on other things that will actually move your organizations. And, and I really do believe that it takes teams. So yes, partners, but more teams um, to, to really get sort of social impact, to work on social impact, but also to have, you know, these businesses that, that thrive in, in different parts of the city. Okay. So I do uh, sleep and I do <laughs> eat and yeah. um, I, I try to walk a lot. Um, I've tried a bunch of different, I need to do group um, activities for, for working out or else I'm just 100% not motivated. Need that motivation. So, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. So I love working out with other people. Okay. And, and so what's the time split between the four, four organizations? Are you, you know, are you heavy, heavily operating on one or is it, you know, obviously this, this midnight, the midnight market, that's going to be, you know, I'm sure around the time of that event, It'll ramp you're, up. you're going crazy for a couple of weeks and then. And it dies and off. It dies off. And <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, how, how are you splitting your time between all this? So the development company, um, so Hive Development, so my urban planning hat, um, we 
we only really take on a handful of projects and it has to do with capacity, but also it has to do with the projects that I like to work on. And those projects have, uh, for the most part, a strong community engagement um, uh, aspect to them. And so that is probably the one that's mostly year round. Um, so, and that one is sort of uh, the, the model of that business is it's consulting, so it's charged by the hour, and so it does take um, up a chunk of time. Leftovers, uh, the spa, uh, Moonlight Market, and Fresh Roots, these come in waves. So it's like when grants are due, uh, if the spa is really busy at certain times of the year, I spend a lot more time there. So it just sort of fluctuates and it depends. And I try to put out less fires uh, now. I used to put out a lot of fires before, but... You know, you learn and you grow um, as a business owner and uh, you just have to be adaptable to move forward in the smartest way possible. So what are uh, with respect to the uh, project, uh, sorry, the hive developments, um, what's what's kind of the big stuff going on there right now? Are you are you guys working with the city at all or are you working with communities? What are what are kind of your big flagship things right now? For sure. Yeah. So we just finished um, a project in Chinatown that um uh, we just got approval uh, from planning commission and from uh, council and that is arguably well it is the largest development chinatown will ever see it's uh, what it looks like is now is two 28 story towers a 15 story hotel and then a sort of i call it canton alley but it's sort of this like lovely muse that sort of intersects the site and it has retail uh, kind of lining that site. So it becomes this, you know, really beautiful um, urban space where you can have these sort of incubations, small uh, retail, uh, you know, Chinatown type businesses line that street. That one was uh, a long and, and, and very community engaged project. Um, you know, with these things, these sort of urban revitalization projects, I like to call them, uh, you're going to get a lot of opposition and it takes a lot of time having conversations and discussions with the community um, and trying to understand both sides and and ensure that you are representing, you know, your developer, because that's who pays the bills at the end of the day, but that you're also bringing value to Calgary and to that area. Uh, and that you're respecting the local knowledge and the local feedback. Uh, so all of my projects um, have that sort of sense. So they're larger developments that um, require a lot of conversation. Right. And so um, on the Chinatown development, um, what stage is that operation? Are you, are you in permitting phase? Are you breaking ground next week? What's happening? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a $350 million uh uh, build out. So it's a fairly, it's, it's, it's a parking lot right now. It's a fairly large uh, site. We are, we, we passed land use. Um, we got the development permit approved um, recently and uh, we are currently being appealed, which uh, happens sometimes with these, uh, with these types of projects. Um, and that's where we're at uh, at the moment. So we'll see where that goes. Okay. So you guys are are kind of the chief on all the design for this. You'll be or orchestrating that with the yeah, construction. We worked on uh, with Perkins and Will um, on the architecture, and then the developer, uh, who's El Condor Lands, uh, who have the Guardian and Arriva Towers. Uh, they'll look at a, a sort of strategy for for construction and build out. My job as a planner is, um, you know, to work with all different types of stakeholders uh, to make the process respectful and. Um, to make sure that all voices are, are heard and, and that we can build, you know, sort of what everyone wants into a development. Uh, we're not always going to get what everyone wants. Well, we're never going to get what everyone wants in a development. Um, but our job is to make sure that the process uh, was transparent and equal and fair. And then all the construction and all that fun stuff that I don't deal with um, happens later on. Yeah, of course. Right. Okay. So obviously, just take a step in a different direction. Um, we're in pretty tumultuous times right now in Alberta. You know, the industry, particularly the oil and gas industry, has suffered probably more than it ever has. For you as as an entrepreneur uh, running these organizations, what is what is currently kind of the biggest challenge that you see? Maybe not perhaps for yourself, maybe for yourself, but but just as a general, uh, what, what are you seeing as a big challenge for entrepreneurs in Alberta right now? 
You know, I think that, well, the biggest challenge for entrepreneurs, I think, is this shift that we're going through. Sort of, it is this, we were at a $100 barrel uh, oil and, and we're just not there. And maybe we won't be there again, but we need to start changing our uh, sort of mindsets about the types of businesses that Alberta has. And I know everyone says it, it's such a buzzword, but it needs to happen. And that's, you know, we need to diversify our economy. And this is just that shift and it's really hard and it's really, it's, it's a really nasty kind of fight right now. Um, and that the oil and gas industry has done so much for Alberta. It's built this province and we need to respect that. Um, but I think we also need to look at, you know, what our future looks like. Um, and, and I'm hoping that entrepreneurs in Alberta are starting to recognize that and start looking at more innovative ways uh, to make our province, you know, where it was. Yeah, for sure. I, I feel your uh, I feel your sentiment there. Um, being raised in Calgary as well, watching watching this, is, you can see it's, it. It's, yeah, it's pretty hard to watch. Um, a lot of people unable to find work and um, having. Well, a lot of people are being very resourceful and pivoting. That's mm-hmm. that's what you know. Probably the rainforests are all about. Yeah, and I think that's our strength as Albertans. I think our you know one of the things that we do really really well is we can adapt. Um, and we see it all the time with communities. You know, we can get on the same page with certain things. There'll always be things that we fight about, but we can we can get on the same page with uh, for certain things. And I hope those fundamental things moving forward aren't about you know looking at what we had and and focusing on that. I hope that people really look into the into the future and what we can produce. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. So, and then with your, your businesses and the development business and others, uh, what are your, what are your kind of big goals for them? Are you, are you looking to grow them into huge companies? Are you looking to, you know, continue the status quo and give to the community? I know what you're not running nonprofit, nonprofit uh, enterprise don't, don't typically chase after multinational status, but it, it can go that way, right? If you've, if you've got a very good idea that has value yeah. in other places around the world. Yeah. Um, so what are, what are you kind of after in each, in each channel? So actually for leftovers and fresh fruits, we will be going nationally. So, you know, I've built these um, sort of social, well, the fresh fruits is a social enterprise where we can scale and it is replicable. I think it's important for social good to be scalable. Um you know, and if we take the model that we've had with this um, with this food truck, I think we're we're selling into community something like a quarter of a million dollars worth of produce, and so there is a need there for people to get access to fresh groceries on a weekly basis, um, and that's that's not you know specific to Calgary. That's Edmonton's been knocking on our door, Winnipeg, Toronto, Vancouver, and so I think that there is you know, uh, a really important social enterprise piece there that that um, that needs to be scaled nationally. Um, the Leftovers Foundation in terms of not in terms of, you know, financial, because uh, it's a it's a full blown charity. But I think what's been successful with the Leftovers Foundation and what what I would really like to, you know, have nationally and globally, um, and this is my sort of vision, is that you know, in Canada, we waste forty-nine billion dollars of food per year. If we want to talk about wasting money and and you know tying that to climate change and all of these you know things and all of these goals that you know we as a country want to hit, uh, I think it starts from something that we really that every single person has been guilty of, and and that's food waste. Every single person has not finished the food on their plate or took too much at a buffet or has eaten at a buffet, or has worked in a restaurant and has seen that amount of food go to waste. And I think that $49 billion a year number that we waste in food in Canada is completely unacceptable. And so the community mobilization behind leftovers is a super important piece that I'd like to take uh, that I'd like to take nationally and internationally. We all need to start thinking about how we can reduce our waste you know, not only with food, but with other things. And and these sort of concepts need to be top of mind. The spa has been a funny little business because it's been so uh, linked with, you know, it's a, it's a business that requires people to have extra cash and benefits, two things of which in the last six years, I would say, have been declining uh, in Calgary. So it's been this kind of funny little fighter, um, but I'd like to, uh, you know, I, I think if I put my sort of spa hat on, 
And if we look at sort of self-care and mental health and where that's going, we don't take care of ourselves at all. Um, and I think that's something that people need to, to look at and change and including, you know, in Europe, the spa and going to the spa is not something extraneous. It is something that they build into their everyday routine. Um, and that's, again, one of those mind shift things that, you know, we need to th be thinking about our own self-care and, and what makes us shut down for an hour. So I would like to, I would like to expand expand that and I have some ideas <laughs> here in Calgary Alberta Canada yeah uh, Calgary and and for sure um and then perhaps Edmonton because I'm up there so much doing work <laughs> for leftovers right so it only makes sense now before we move on to the hive uh on the on the spa side I did notice that you have a bit of a different business model a bit a bit of a different pricing strategy than pretty much any other spa that I've seen Mm -hmm. um, do you want to talk about that and yeah, see the membership? Yeah, see how you how how does that work as compared to a, a standard? I show up and pay hundred dollars, and someone right. gives me a massage or whatever. Yeah, and we certainly have sort of that a la carte. We're in the hotel in in the Marriott and Seaton, um, and so we do have sort of these a la carte services that you would um, you know show up and pay for uh, individually, but. Part of uh, my philosophy on self-care is that you don't do it for six hours once every two years. You do it every single month or whenever suits you know your self-care needs. And so the philosophy behind our you know memberships is uh, $69 a month. It's like a subscription. You get one 60-minute massage um, per month. And if you'd like to do more, you're sort of um, rewarded for, for coming in and doing self-care. So you will always get a reduced pricing um, if you're a member of the spa. And it's been really helpful on uh, uh, being in that community uh, right near Auburn Bay and, and Cranston um, and having those uh, sort of residents come out and, and support us and be members of the spa. I think we've increased membership uh, well, my sales in general um, have increased since we started about 218%. And then we do about a 10 or 15% increase in membership um, each month. And, and we're really, you know, trying to get people to understand that self-care is really important and we need to work it into our regular routine rather than, you know, this notion of treating ourselves only once a year. Right. Okay. And uh, how did you, how did you arrive at this? Did you run, did you run market tests to to assess that this would be a more effective way to retain clientele. For sure, yeah. Uh, I can't take full credit for that. My brother-in-law um, is, uh, you know, I think I had the philosophy and he had the number side and he was kind of like, we need something that's, uh, or all businesses need something where you have that sort of steady income. Um, and, it, and it sort of matched this philosophy of mine. So I think, you know, other spas, when we were downtown, we were downtown for almost four years uh, before we moved out to the suburbs and downtown was losing, you know, tens of thousands of people every week. Um, and we were seeing it in our numbers. And, you know, if anyone wants to talk about a failing downtown business because of property tax and, you know, all of these things uh, and, and your building being bought out by uh, a, another company that wasn't a Calgary owner and your rent increasing 176%, I would love to talk to you because I can now read leases uh, in my sleep. Um, but, you know, I think that da the downtown was a really nice testing ground for these things. So we tested different types of memberships. Some of them went really well and some of them went really terribly. And when we moved into the suburban space, so we, we sort of had that um, background uh, and then we moved into the suburban space. Uh, it, it just made sense for, for that type of clientele. And then other spas uh, brought that on as well. So you see, you know, the massage heights of the world and, and other companies that just are focused on one treatment, they'll always have membership uh, membership pricing. So, Okay, well, good for you. That's great. Uh, very, very kind of lean startup approach, entrepreneurial approach, uh, yeah. doing tests and, and evaluating what works best in, in, in your market. So that's, that's fantastic and clearly leads to success. Um, and then, so yeah, getting back to the uh, your the scaling question. Um, oh, about Hive. What's what's going on with Hive? Are you gonna are you gonna take over the world with Hive? Or <laughs> you know what? I actually love that that's um, that that's a, a quite a modest company in terms of the amount of projects we take on a year. Um, developers take on a huge risk owning land developing it, building it. Um, and I've seen that, you know, since I was 14 years old. So 
when I work with a developer or when I work with a landowner, we are seriously, um, I use the word hyper-focused already, but hyper-focused on that particular developer. And so uh, we only take on a handful of clients and, and we make sure that, um, you know, the the what we're doing is has this sort of inclusive stakeholder process where everyone has a voice. Uh, and because of that, I don't like to take on too much at one time. Um, I love developing Calgary, so it's not something that I want to take a model and look at Edmonton or Halifax or Vancouver. Um, I really love working with Calgary communities. I think people are really engaged and um, everyone comes in with their own worldview uh, when you're developing and I think that's really interesting. So I'm one of those weird people that just love community consultations, whether I get yelled at or not. Well, that's great. Good for you because uh, Calgary needs you right now. Alberta needs you right now. So that's fantastic. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna dive in a little bit on the on the leftovers foundation with a few questions there. Sure. Um, something that I'm I don't know why but I'm just particularly interested in. I'm I'm very much one of these non-food waste people. Um, I never leave a grain of rice on my plate. That's good. Teach your kids. Um, <laughs> yeah, my, my daughter, you know, she's got a half-eaten piece of toast with bite marks on it, and she's stuck her finger in the in the butter, and I'm I'm eating it, and my wife says that's You're a disgusting. Good dad. <laughs> And uh, I know, you know, lots of, lots of dads that do that, but, uh, but yeah, I'm, I, you know, I think we shop at Costco and buy huge quantities of fresh food and maybe I'll throw out a, a throw out a rotten apple, you Good know, here you. and there and, and yeah. just really, really, really on it. And I don't know why I just, uh, maybe, maybe, uh, my grandparents were, uh, were in Poland during the war. Okay. And so they were, um, obviously in a, in a circumstance where they basically had no food at all. Um, and so we spend a lot of time with them in childhood and, uh, they were very much, you know, never wasted, never waste a single scrap. Yeah. We really take, we take a lot of things yeah. for granted, but. Absolutely. Yeah. And obviously a lot of that stuff continues around the world where there's food shortages. Um, but, oh, yeah. but you know, uh, through the, through the world wars and the great depression, you know, there was, I think a lot of people in our generation don't really comprehend, um, what people went through. Um, cause For now sure. it's, you know, in the West food is plentiful. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we have such an abundance of it. Yeah. So, uh, now the, you kind of spoke a little bit how you, how you started the foundation. Um, I think I might've heard somewhere along the way, a story about you running around the stampede grounds, <laughs> uh, collecting food. So I did, I wasn't allowed in, to let's hear about that. Okay. So <laughs> it was, uh, when was this? 2016. Uh, I knew the company that was doing their waste management, so their composting uh, and and recycling services. And they called me up one night and they said, you know what, when we pick up from vendors or when vendors dispose of food each night, it's not at the compost stage. Some of it's really good stuff that, you know, if you can glean this, can we bring it to service agencies? So I on the last day of Stampede in 2016, I snuck on like at one in the morning with um, these waste management guys who will na be named unnamed, so I don't want to get them in trouble. Um, and they gave me like a fake badge and we did all this um, weird stuff. I had like a vest and a, and a badge. And I went around and I asked vendors if, you know, they would donate their food. It was the last day, um, you know, no one would be eating it and, and you know, what they were going to do with it. So we talked to a bunch of vendors and it was, you know, three and a half hours and six trips later. Uh, and we collected uh, 1.2 tons of food on one night. So... And it's a lot to kind of skirt. Um, I think I, I had a Honda Civic or something at the time. It was myself, one other volunteer, and we were just back and forth to different agencies, uh, the agencies that were open uh, for 24 hours. Uh, and then, so I went home. I was exhausted. It was like four o'clock in the morning, and typically I'm in bed by nine. So this was just out of my um, comfort zone. But I got home at, you know, four o'clock, just crashed and, and woke up the next day to a text to my mom. And she said, oh, I think you're on the Huffington Post. And I said, oh, no, I didn't do an interview or anything. That must be, I don't know, must be another Lourdes one or something. Um, and she said, no, I'm pretty sure it's you. And the Huffington Post had sort of done this article or this piece where they had curated the photos that I was taking the night before um, and did this sort of national piece on food waste at the Stampede. 
So unfortunately, unfortunately, that's how the Stampede found out because they obviously didn't know I was there that night. And they did ask us formally back in 2017. But um, the first sort of 2016 experience was really really something to remember so why the fly-by-night approach was it was it not a reasonable thing for you to to deal with them directly were they not amenable to that i think that you know the stampede plans so far out even when we were planning 2017 you know we think the stamp the stampede starts in july but they're planning you know august the year prior (laughs) and so it in 2016 it wasn't something where i knew anybody at the stampede to call them um, to sort of get permission to go on the grounds, I thought this is waste management. We could do, we just have to do it. Sometimes we just need to go and get the work done and ask for forgiveness later, which is exactly what I did. And they forgave me and then asked me back in 2017. We have not been asked back since, but I would like to, um, you know, work on this sort of event collection piece with larger uh, festivals uh, that operate in the city, because I think it's important for them to set a good example and to set precedent uh, for for other large scale events. Okay, and just just out of curiosity, what did that haul look like? Where you, did you have a eight hundred bags of fries in your in your trunk, or what was? You know what? So there was a lot of mini donuts, which is actually really fun for sort of twenty four seven rehabilitation centers. Um, but some of it was was fresh produce. So you know, in the BMO center where they do all the um, all the chopping, and this is how great this knife is, and this is this um, this doohickey. We. Uh, we picked up a lot of fresh produce because they weren't going to use it. Um, and then we picked up a lot of stuff that had been pre-cut. And so it was a lot of that. And then uh, they had a lot of dry goods as well. One of the vendors was telling me that she's from the States. And when she brings up dry goods from the States um, into Canada, so the Canadian you know, border's fine with her bringing it up. But when she goes back home, uh, the border guards, the U.S. border guards throw out all of her food. And these are dry goods. Like, it just makes no sense. They're... They're not contaminated. They're not even open and they don't expire. So I have no idea. I didn't understand that logic. So she gave us, I think it was almost a pallet of uh, like waffle and pancake mix, um, which, you know, a service agency could use forever. (laughs) Uh, And so there was a lot of that. um, There was a lot of that picked up, but it was really fun. It was a really fun experience. And in 2017, we had a lot more volunteers because we were way more coordinated. It wasn't just me and one other person. Uh, so it was a, a lot of fun in 2017. We picked up every single day instead of the last oh, wow. night. Yeah. So Fantastic. we had 10 days of pickups. So that must have been a massive haul after 2017. Yeah. So 2017, it was almost the same. I would say a little bit more um, stretched over a 10-day period. But if we look at the statistics from 2016 to 2017, 2016, it was heavy rain. Um, the stampede numbers weren't, you know, where they wanted them to be. And in 2017, it was beautiful and people were consuming um, food and, and beverage at the stampede uh, at the normal numbers that we were looking at. So um, I think we picked up 1.3 or 1.4 tons throughout the 10 days and, and we were happy with that. Oh, that's really great. So one of the other things I was uh, looking into before speaking with you was uh, you may have seen the documentary um, Just Eat It, the food, yes, food waste yes. documentary, and perhaps you know some people who have been involved in that. Yes. Um, for, and for those who don't know, it was basically a documentary with a lot of people around. Uh, there's a couple of people from Europe, but a lot of North Americans who are very well versed in this subject mm-hmm. and know a lot of the stats on food waste. And then they followed the couple um, who tried to live off wasted food for six months, which they did successfully, yeah, which was horrifying. Yeah, and they ate like kings and queens. <laughs> um, yeah, so, and and through that, you see the the food waste, it happens at multiple levels of the food chain, right? Like, it, it happens at, at the grower's level, right? The grower grows and the, and the tomato looks bad, <clears throat> and then they throw it away. And then those pass, and then the ones that pass go in the truck, and the ones that go in the truck go however many thousand kilometers until they arrive where they are going. Exactly. And then some of those don't make it. Uh, And then they are in the store. And then some of them get bought in the store. And then some of them don't get sold before they go off. And then some of them make in the refrigerator. And then they go off in the refrigerator, right? And so I think the statistic there was somewhere around 40% 40%. of produced food. Yeah. Um, yeah, so what, se- what, what, what more can you talk to me about that? So on? Second Harvest, which is sort of leftovers um, in Toronto, they've been around for 35 years. So we look at them for a lot of this sort of research and policy stuff. And you're right. So this is the what they call the avoidable food crisis, um, food waste crisis. You know, food waste 
happens at every single level. So at the farmers, at the processors during transportation, um, at the grocery store, like at the retail level, and then on our own plates. The majority, the, the sort of two biggest food wasters are processors and and us. So we waste, uh, I think it's 37%. I, don't, I can't remember the new number, but it's almost 40% of, of our food at home. Uh, 25% of the groceries we buy uh, go into the garbage. So it's like, I, I think it was in that documentary or one of the documentaries I saw about food waste, but that's like taking four bags of groceries, like walking back to your vehicle with four bags of groceries, leaving one in the parking lot, like dropping one and not going back to pick it up. No one would ever do that, but we actually do that in our own homes, which is, is just wild to me. And I, you know, you talked about shopping at Costco, you know, and it's, you, you have an, an efficient kitchen an efficient family. A lot of families aren't like we're incentivized to buy bulk. So, you know, the Costco's of the world and these sort of large retailers, it is cheaper sometimes to buy 20 pounds of apples than to buy five. And so because of that, you know, incentive, and we just think that we're getting such a deal, uh, we buy the 20 pounds of apples and we're a two-person household. So a lot of that doesn't make sense to me. A lot of it is sort of mindset shift and marketing and, and all of these things. And that's that kind of advocacy and education piece that I think the Leftovers Foundation, um, you know, that's something that we're working on, but it, uh, it's pretty appalling when you look at all of the numbers and all of those numbers together account for $49 billion uh, of food waste. And, and when you take $49, $49 billion of food and you put it on a landfill, um, it produces, and I'm not saying that that's what happens, but some of it does go to the landfill. It produces methane gas, which is 25 times more powerful than CO2. So, you know, maybe, you know, a, a layman person wouldn't understand carbon credits and how, you know, carbon capture, but we can understand that when we take a piece of steak and throw it in the garbage and it goes to the landfill, uh, we can understand that that's wasteful. Right. And so this is, is this, this is purely a Western problem? Uh, I would, I imagine I, I, I don't see a lot of people and, you know, spend some time traveling mm-hmm. in some countries that maybe not so wealthy as ours. I don't see them behaving that way at all. Yeah. And that's, and that's just it. It's a, it's a behavioral, um, I think thing. And, and it's, and it's all about mindset. We do have a lot here that we take for granted and, but globally, we still are wasting globally about 40%. Wow. Um, so, you know, whether it's an indiv- at an individual from an individual, or if it's from the other different levels, um, of food processing and food systems, it's, uh, it's still a lot of waste. So the Leftovers Foundation really works with retailers and at that retail level, um, because that's, in my mind, where that advocacy needs to start. It needs to start with the individual. So it's a very grassroots approach of, of changing our mindsets about, you know, how we think about our food system. Yeah. And so that's what, that's a good place to, to go. I want to ask you about your collection. So, I mean, there's various places where you could collect the food from uh, distribution, you know, at the warehouse level, you have grocery stores, and mm-hmm. then of course you've got, you know, vendors and you know events, festivals, that kind of stuff. So, are you focused in any area in particular, or are you just saying, you know, I saw I saw a um, clip of uh, one of these warehouses, distribution warehouses, and they had a dumpster full of hummus, like a massive dumpster full of hummus, and they they stumbled across it and they didn't know what to do. You know, I can't. There's no way I can possibly eat all this. You know, that's and and piles of hams and meat and before it even hits the grocery store shelf. Yeah. Um, so are you are you targeting any of those places in particular or is it are you just saying wherever I can find it I'll do it? We do have so we have uh, most of the stuff that we pick up is from actually so we have basically we have three levels of pickup uh, or three avenues of pickup. One is uh, at the retail level so working with grocery stores uh, and sort of that large retail space. So big box stores. Uh, the second is, you know, your local small cafes. So if they have uh, excess food, we have a process. We actually developed an app um, with uh, high school girls, actually developed our app for us. And the app basically says, you know, it's a schedule of who has food at what time and where you can bring it. And so people are able to, it's like an Uber for food rescue. Uh, and so we have that service. And then we also have this sort of on-demand service, which is, you know, we can take food uh, from events if it's planned. Uh, If the stampede calls again, we can certainly work out something there. And so we have sort of these three avenues. 
We do, uh, sorry, and under that on-demand service, we do have uh, distribution warehouses. So we partner with Second Harvest. They're a lovely organization. They want to stay focused in Toronto. And so every time that they have a distributor in Alberta, sort of Calgary and area, if they know that they'll have excess food and it can't go to the grocery store because it's, you know, three months before it's best before and no grocery store will purchase it, we pick it up. Uh, and then we we distribute that. But uh, a lot of our work lies in that retail space. Okay. Um, so that ties in nicely with the scaling question. Then you've got partners in Toronto and, and you, you mentioned earlier that you're you're going after Edmonton now. So are you are you now kind of at this point where you've established you've got an app that's fantastic? A um, bunch of young, young, excited entrepreneur yeah. type girls help you do it. That's great. You know, you would establish a workflow and some kind of process framework whereby this stuff can be done efficiently and obviously there's the whole other question of messaging and getting the consumer to understand all the stuff about waste and you know it's okay to buy an ugly tomato and all these kinds of things Mm -hmm. but but putting that aside are are you kind of you're now at that point where you've got a nice framework that you believe you can deploy in other cities or perhaps there are other partners that are doing something similar in other cities that you could partner with you know obviously canada's Canada's small potatoes compared to the United States. And if yes. you could if you could get this kind of scale of food waste prevention in the United States, it would be yes. massive. And there there are, you know, different food rescue organizations. Um they're sort of littered all over the states. There's a bunch of them and, and some of them are based on on app platforms. Um I think the difference between us and them is they started with an app when with us, we started with me in an Excel document and 800 volunteers that drive food around. And so now we're, um, you know, going in and, and taking this meaningful work and making it more efficient. So we, uh, this app uh, is was developed by four high school girls from Bishop McNally High School in an attempt uh, or in partnership with Technovation, which is, uh, you know them, I'm sure. Great organization. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they try to get girls in STEM at a really involved in STEM at a really young age. So they worked with the University of Calgary and I heard about the program there and sort of pitched to these to these girls if they could work on this app that I had envisioned. And so we have version one out right now and we're beta testing it to work in Edmonton. So the rescue food in Edmonton has been going on for a year and a half. And now we're coming in with the app and saying, let's put the routes on the app and kind of beta test to see if it works. And and if it works in Edmonton, um, we can take that to other cities and it's an easy way to scale without sort of breaking the bank on, on other things, you know, having a 42 person or a 420 person organization when we don't need that. We can be really efficient with technology these days. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. So, and then the leftovers foundation and the community mobile market, those are hundred percent run by volunteers. You, you don't have to do fundraising for any of this stuff. So we have, um, the leftovers foundation up until year six was run by volunteers so that was my time an executive team a board and then every single driver that that drove around in year seven uh so this this past year i was awarded uh something through l'oreal paris uh and i donated that award to the foundation and the foundation sort of has paid my sort of honorarium through there so we're starting to pay staff and that was started last year as of, I want to say last summer, we've brought on people slowly. So there is 2.5 people working with the Leftovers Foundation. Fresh Roots, because it's a fully functioning social enterprise, I think there's, I'm going to go wrong with these employee numbers, but there's uh, five or six people. So market leads, coordinators, um, people working on strategy, and then my co-founder, Rob Ironside. He He's fully paid as the executive director of Fresh Roots. So I think we can get nonprofits to a point where we are looking at a fully social enterprise model because grants are not um, available all the time. Every single organization in Calgary and beyond fights for the same grants uh, and it's not a sustainable way to do business. And so if you have this stream, especially for leftovers, where you know you have a grant stream, but it's just one of your sort of income pieces, and you look at other ways, social enterprise ways to make your organization sustainable, then the more you can grow and the more unrestricted funds you have to do that. And we've, we've done a, a few kind of fun projects with leftovers, and we're looking at doing more. 
but we're upcycling some of this excess food and making beer with cold garden. And I think we're looking into a fruit beer as well and taking excess fruit and they're brewing with it. And then they're making beer and proceeds from that go back into the foundation. And we've done that with ice cream and, and different t- kinds of dessert treats with some local vendors. So it's been an interesting process doing that upcycling and, and ensuring that that's a viable social enterprise that lies within the foundation. Yeah, that's uh, that seems to me like probably the right way right approach right if you're if you're building your model around a, a local a local government where you know grants are issued and you know what happens if you go to Manitoba and the funding's not there or you exactly. go to Montana and the funding's not there so how are you going to sustain this sustain this group and keep it running yeah exactly so we're looking at sort of models um, through the charitable organization to do that while still you know meeting our, our charitable Um, objects. But it's been fun with Fresh Roots kind of seeing that grow as a social enterprise. Um, And I think that's, I'm hoping where not only nonprofits go, but I'm hoping that's where businesses in general go, that we're not, you know, just socially conscious businesses, because there's a difference between social enterprise and being socially conscious, but that we're actually increasing our income while increasing our social good at the same time. Yeah, that's great. And so you mentioned the Fresh Roots, you're You'd started initially at a, you know, perhaps it was a dozen. Eight markets a dozen, month. And then now you're up to 60 or something like that, right? Yes. So that's multiple per day. Multiple per day, five days a week, and we're just looking into a weekend schedule now. Uh, the city of Calgary, I, I, I sit on Calgary Planning Commission with my urban planning hat on, and uh, so I have a few contacts at the city who've been very supportive of the charitable work that I do. Through there, I... Uh, have a Calgary Transit contact and they have donated two City of Calgary Transit buses to us that we're currently retrofitting to be grocery stores on wheels. So apparently it's not super easy to retrofit a bus. So now that we have these buses, uh, Rob has to figure out how we're going to retrofit them. But I got him buses. So. Okay. So if I see a, <laughs> if I see an old big blue bus with ketchup falling down the side, I know That's it's you. That's us. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be the well, it'll be the Fresh Roots Community Mobile Market. Um, you'll see it. It'll be big and bright and uh, and beautiful. So so what is so what do one of these markets look like right now? Like how many families are you helping out with each delivery? Yeah. So Bow Valley probably Bow Valley in the East Village uh, with the senior population there are probably our largest market. So Bow Valley is a high um, sort of young immigrant population with with families, and so they buy a lot of groceries. And then East Village, we just have the best senior population there. It's my favorite market to go to. And it's anywhere between 75 to 150, 125, 150 um, transactions per market. We're only there for an hour and a half, two hours, and we move on to the next um, spot. So everyone knows the schedule. They know when the truck is showing up and it's set up just like a farmer's market. Um, But when we have the bus, um, it'll be set up within the bus and we'll have less takedown and setup time. So we'll be able to be more efficient and put more markets into one day. Uh, and buses are barrier-free. They're, they're conducive to wheelchairs and strollers. And so people will be able to get on the bus and get off the bus accessibly. That's great. Yeah, you guys are really planning it very well. And then the um, and then the source of the food itself. Now, you mentioned that you've got you know arrangements with producers to get this stuff. Yeah. Um, so are you just kind of sneaking that into the train on the on the regular supply <laughs> chain, or are you do you have your own channels for acquisition? So um, H and W Produce is our major partner, but we do also have a partnership with the Loblaws in Sage Hill, and that's where we get all of our all our produce and dry goods from. Loblaws comes in uh, with stuff that we just can't grow in Alberta, so H and W sources food from uh, Alberta and BC, and Loblaws will give us our culturally appropriate food. So we just can't grow okra um in in alberta it's a, shame. it's a shame yes but cultural communities uh need okra it's part of their one of their staples in their diets and you know we work with community social workers to make sure we're providing food that they would um that they would need and not providing anything that they wouldn't eat because that would that's not part of our model our model is very um iterative and it's and it's uh, very inclusive so um we work with those two major major retailers um uh we've worked with a few others before and it's uh it's been going really great the the calgary community in terms of you know, if you tell them what we're doing and, and you know, how they can be involved and, and making these asks and making these partnerships and having these memorandums of understanding, um, the Calgary community is is so supportive um, of this because we know that food access is such a huge problem. And we've just designed our cities that way. So 
if I put my planning hat on, you know, <laughs> we've designed our cities that the affordable grocery stores are accessible by vehicle only. Um, and sometimes that's not conducive to a senior that doesn't drive that lives in the East Village. Yep. And sometimes that's not conducive to a young immigrant single mom family where she works 14 hours a day. Yeah. And so we have to make this stuff convenient to them because that that food access is just a basic human right. Yeah. So on that point of food access, do you, do you feel that this, this model is something that is sustainable or do you feel like we can do something bigger? Oh, we have to, to do something to, to bigger. To make it better and so that you don't have to take city buses and gut them and yeah. fill them oh, up yeah. with whatever. Yeah. And I, and I think that process will be iter iterative, but we do need to think, I think, big picture. There's grocery stores in uh, Toronto that are, and I, I'm not sure what I think about this model, but it's pay as you can. And they have these, and it's all curated excess food. So they, they glean sort of that B-grade produce from um, different suppliers and, and they... They do a pay-as-you-can model. So I think there is um, need for sort of a, a standalone grocery store in the inner city that's serve, you know, off a train line that can potentially service a large population. Um, I don't know what that looks like yet. I think, you know, having this market focus and going from one place to the next is an important piece that we need to build out right now. And I think if we think bigger into policy, we seriously need to overhaul some of this food system policy that we have. It wasn't until very recently that urban agriculture was looked at um, in the city. And, you know, it, it, that makes no sense to me. We call for like a mix of uses. We always talk about, you know, this is the way planning should go. And, you know, we're looking at doing, you know, commercial with residential on top and a mix of uses here and there. It would be great to have this brewery here. And, you know, but we also need to be talking about vertical farming and we need to be talking about having that food closer to where people live at an affordable price. A lot of the small convenience stores, you know, are in downtown and, and in, in the inner city area. They're there, but they're not um, affordable. And so it's what's the overarching policy that can support an affordable grocery store? I don't know the answer to that, but I know that that's something that we need to work on. Yeah, that's good. Well, I hope, I hope that one, that one continues to progress and, you know, what you're doing now will eventually transition into something that's bigger and more sustainable. And Yeah, we hope that it informs future policy. I mean, we're doing this work on the ground level so that we can sort of garner political will to uh, to push these things forward. Yeah. So that kind of ties into the last kind of last question I wanted to ask you about on this was the messaging around food waste. And, you know, there's all there's a lot of documentaries out there. There's a lot of, you know, people talking, people talking about it, but it still doesn't stick for a lot of people. I mean, I, I go, you know, I'll go to hang out with social events and things like that. And you see food getting tossed and people, people, they've heard the messaging before, but they don't even, they don't care. Yeah. Um, you know, what's your view? I'm, I'm sure you've spoken to a lot of different people around North America who are in this space. What's your view on how we, how we can change the mood, yeah. how we make, make people understand how much damage we're doing and how yeah. wasteful it is? You know, it has to be, um, a daily occurrence. So, this is a, a funny tie-in, but, you know, when I think of marketing for the spa, I think of the different touch points that, you know, a client that I'm that I'm looking to retain as a client would see during the day. So, you know, when we were downtown, let's say she takes the bus into downtown, she sees an ad uh, on the bus. She gets to her office and, you know, someone, she gets a newsletter, one of our newsletters, or someone's talking about it. She goes out for lunch and uh, she passes, you know, another advertisement. And then she goes back home. And again, it's kind of this, you know, constant reminder of, of, of going to the spa. And I think that's where we need to take this sort of food campaigning about our food systems is that people need to have this as part of their their daily routine. And I know that, um, speaking of campaigns, Vancouver did a love food, hate waste campaign, which I, I think was pretty impactful in terms of, you know, buy what you need. It was very easy tips to, to reduce your food waste. And, you know, this is the impact that you have. And, you know, whether people like it or not, making the comparison of you have this much food that you're throwing away, but this person has nothing. That comparison, whether it's right or wrong, people listen to that. And, you know, maybe we need to think more along those lines of, uh, you know, we have this much and this person has nothing. So we should be, you know, respecting our food and our food system a bit more so that we can all come to a, 
a better understanding of 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 not wasting any food. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for that. That's uh, I think that's going to be most of the questions that I've got for you. Thanks uh, for having me. Is there me. anything else that anything else that you want to want to chat about before we wrap it up? No, this was really great. I um I always plug our websites, but they're, I'll just plug Rescue Food, or else I'll be listing off seven websites. Um, uh, the Leftovers Foundation is rescuefood.ca, uh, and you can link to freshroots.ca uh, and and all the work that we're doing there. Okay, right on. And if people want to find you, are you uh, are you a Twitter trying to be or incognito, are you like but that, or are you? <laughs> um, I tend to um, talk on Twitter maybe a bit too much, but yes, uh, my Twitter handle I don't even know. I think it's Lourdes M One uh, on Twitter, and that's sort of uh, the best way to get a hold of me. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay, if you haven't already, visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social Contract. Become part of the inclusive, silo-busting, sector-agnostic, all-industry, open-source, ego-shrinking, ecosystem-building, entrepreneur-focused, wide-open, social-barrier-smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This episode was sponsored by Workhouse, bright and inspiring co-working spaces that fuel productivity and cultivate creativity. The way you were meant to work. Make Workhouse Core the new home for your business. Music for the show was created by Tony Deldegan. Please be sure to share this episode with everyone you know. Also, don't forget to come by and say hi at the next Rainforest event. Let us know what you think of this podcast. If you're interested in being either a host, sponsor, or a guest of the show, send me an email at rainforestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.